The following sermon was delivered to Christ Central Church in order to further our knowledge and adoration of who God is. We pray that it displays the hope found in Christ and strengthens your faith in Him. If you have a uh, copy of God's Word, would you join me? Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12 is a call to all people of faith to run the race, their life, their, their Christian life, a life of faith, to run it with endurance. It begins in verse 1 by tying us back to verse 11, or chapter 11, rather, with all of these great examples of faith, of uh, triumph and tragedy. But in all of those instances, there was an endurance to their faith that persevered through difficulty, and they all died, all of them died in faith without having yet received the promises of God because God's promises for us don't lie only in this life but are ultimately seen and received and enjoyed in the next. So he encourages his readers, these Hebrew believers, to run the race with endurance. And by extension, the Holy Spirit is Encouraging us to run the race with endurance, to not lose heart. To not lose heart even when we're faced with difficulties and suffering. That's where we were last week, that it is the love of God, it is out of His love that He disciplines His children. That God's disciplining us chastising us as an extension of His love, and it is, it is the proof that we are the children of God. The writer of Hebrews says it this way, verse 7, it is for discipline that you have to endure. It is for the sake of the discipline of God that you have to be... Uh, Enduring to the end because in God's discipline, He is treating you as sons. As sons. When we see our life and through this lens that our difficulties, our struggles, the the disciplining hand of God on our lives, which we said last week, is what is it that God is using these circumstances to build in me? And the chastisement because of our sin, what is it that God wants to remove from me? That those experiences in our life flow out of the love of God and that in them He has a purpose for us that, that kind of understanding, that perspective, changes the way we live. That changes how we see things. 
to understand that our loving Father disciplines us and that He orders our lives, the triumphs and the tragedies, both for our good and for His glory. That, that should change our perspective. And that is the truth of, of these verses that we come to this morning, I believe. That understanding that our Heavenly Father has a purpose to our lives, especially our pain, changes our perspective. It changes our perspective. And specifically, I think, in these verses this morning, we're going to see four areas where our perspective should change out of the reality that it is the love of God and the purposes of God that disciplines us and chastises us. And here's the four areas I believe I see in these verses. The first is it changes our perspective with our relationship with suffering. Our relationship with suffering. The second is our relationship with others. The third is our relationship with God. And the fourth is our relationship with the church. It changes our perspective and our relationship with suffering, with others, with God, and with the church. Join me, Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse 12. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. And make straight the paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone, and for the, ho- and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For You know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it. With tears. We understand that God has a purpose in our difficulties and sufferings. It changes our perspective. And verse 12 tells us it changes our perspective with relationship to our suffering. Verse 12 says, Therefore, Lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight the paths of your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. As we read just a second ago, this verse is in reference to Isaiah chapter 35, verse 3. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. goes on to say, Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance and with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. 
Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. Therefore, the writer of Hebrews says, Therefore, echoing Isaiah 35 and 3, Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. This church that the writer of Hebrews is writing to is facing increasing persecution. And the writer of this letter is is encouraging them, commanding them, telling them to lift their drooping hands and strengthen their weak knees. Isn't that the case so often when we're faced with difficulties and trials, be they persecutions or disciplines or chastisements, that our our hearts are are downcast. Our hands are are drooping. They're not about the the work of the Lord. They're not about the the worship of the Lord. And our knees are weak. Our our walk with the Lord is far from, from vibrant. The writer of Hebrews says, even in the face of those persecutions, even in the face of these difficulties and these disciplines and these chastisements, you church, you believer, no matter the circumstances, you lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. I I, I read that and I think, how are they to do this? Where, Where am I? Where are you? Where were they to find this kind of strength? Because I, I think we all have, have been in these moments in these places where this is, this is difficult. So where do we find it? Well, the writer of Hebrews is, is giving this command and tying it directly to the verse before it. Now, I hope you know this as you study God's Word. Verse 12 begins with this word, therefore, and it's, it's tying it directly to the verses that, that come before it. So what's the verse that comes before it? For the moment, verse 11, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. What's verse 11 teach us? Verse 11 teaches us that God has a purpose in our suffering and in our discipline. And that while we're in it, it is not pleasant. But we can rest assured that the sovereign God has a purpose in it. And that purpose is to produce in our lives fruit. That's verse 11. So because of that, therefore, strengthen your drooping hands or or lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Here's here's, if we we tie all of this that's that's together that's come before it. The Christian must run the race of faith because we are surrounded by such a cloud of witnesses. Let us throw off all of these things that, that hinder us and slow us down and trip us. These, these, these sins that impede us and let us run with endurance the race marked out before us. 
This is the call. This is the command that we run the race with endurance. And that we should, as believers, show determination in the running of that race. And that like runners in a, in a literal race, see the finish line ahead and take heart and say, I can do it. We must lift up our arms and our legs and run the race to the end, regardless of the circumstances, because we know in these moments of difficulties and sufferings, God has a purpose. And though it may not be pleasant now, in the end, it will produce in us a peaceful fruit. When we have that kind of perspective, our relationship with suffering changes. No longer do we live like the rest of the world, which just wants to um, avoid any kind of suffering by any means necessary. Now, when those moments of difficulties come, we, we welcome them, not with some sort of you know, morbid you know, fascination, but with a, a steady, steadfast heart that trusts in the promises of God, knowing that though this moment is difficult, in the end, God is producing something in me that is for my good and for His glory. And so I will run the race with endurance. He says in verse 13, make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. This verse echoes the words of Proverbs chapter 4, verses 26 and 27. Ponder the path of your feet, then all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your foot away from evil. Run your race in the pathway that God has set out before you. Don't swerve to the left or the right, but make straight the paths of your feet. Run your race with endurance, trusting in the purposes and the promises of God on His pathway. Run the race with holiness. Don't swerve to the left or the right. That's, that's the, the implication here. That's what these verses mean. Run with holiness. Don't swerve to the left or the right. Why? Because narrow is the path that leads to eternal life, and few find it. You see, this kind of perspective and endurance and joy in the face of suffering produces in us a spiritual health and vitality. It's what it, it does. And that's the last part of this verse. So that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. Now this is not a, a, a literal healing. This is not saying that if you live this way, if you run the race with endurance, if you see uh, difficulties and sufferings and hardships... Um, as being a means for the purposes of God in your life to build in you um, character and, and fruit, if you live that way, then you will be healed. That, that cancer diagnosis will, will miraculously change. That 
um, that difficulty will miraculously go away. It's not talking about a a physical, literal healing here. This is metaphorically speaking. Why do I think it's metaphorically speaking? Because everything in in the chapter so far has been metaphor. Are we literally running a race? No, we're not literally running a race. Are we, are we literally taking you know, off our clothes and running the race? Christianity, a bunch of naked people running a marathon. It isn't. That's metaphor. It's all metaphor. Why would we have metaphor there and then just automatically switch to something that's, that's literal? What the writer of Hebrews is saying is that spiritual health and vitality in our life, in our Christian life, in our Christian walk, if we want to be spiritually healthy and we want to have a, a, a vitality, a, a joy, an energy to, to our, our Christian life, that it comes from not losing heart. It comes from trusting in the promises of God, even in our, our suffering. What a difference it makes. What a difference it makes to our, our spiritual life when we know that God loves us. When we know it, God loves us. Yeah, this is a difficult season. Things aren't going well. and I wish this circumstance would change. I wish this diagnosis would change. I wish I'd have deliverance from these things. I wish this person would be different. I wish this, I wish that. What a difference it makes when we know that no matter the circumstance, God loves us. No matter what, He loves us. And that these difficult seasons and these times of discipline and chastisement are not because He's he's disappointed and, and mad and angry, but because He loves us and cares for us and he wants to develop things in us and he wants to remove things from us because he is our perfect heavenly father. That creates a spiritual health and vitality that I believe the church is lacking. What a difference it makes to say, I'm just going to endure through suffering because I know in suffering there is great good and glory for our Heavenly Father. See, when we understand God has a purpose in our suffering, then our relationship with suffering changes. No longer do we, we do everything we can ever do to avoid it, but now... We welcome it. If it's on the path that God has me on, then I'll take it. I'll take it. Next, we see that it it changes our relationships with others. Verse 14. Strive for peace with everyone. Strive for peace with everyone. All right. This is it. When we see... Suffering, difficulty, persecution, heartache are a means for God to produce in us spiritual fruit and to remove from us sin. 
and that regularly that these, these means of God come to us through other people. And we begin to stop seeing them as problems and instead we seek peace because in them God has a purpose. As Christians, we are commanded to live in peace with everyone. We are called by Christ to be peacemakers in the world. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 9, that blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. How do we know that we are sons of God in Hebrews? How do we know? Because he disciplines us. He disciplines us. And when that discipline comes in the form of other people and we seek peace, we're sons of God. Blessed are the peacemaker. Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 8, If possible... So far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. This is the command of God. Look at what God's discipline produces in us in verse 11, Hebrews chapter 12. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Here's the the reality, church. The reality is that the effect of the gospel in our lives should be peace. What the gospel does is it takes us from enemies of God to at peace with Him. That's what the gospel does. We are enemies of His rightly standing under His judgment and wrath because of our sin. And the gospel, the reality that that God became like us so that we could become like Him, He took on human flesh, found in the form of man, humbled Himself even to the point of death, death on a cross. And on the cross, the holy God became sin so that the wrath of God could be satisfied And by faith, His righteousness becomes ours and our sin is put on Him and paid for so that now we're no longer God's enemies because of our sin. We're His children because of the righteousness of Christ. The gospel puts us at peace with God. That's the effect of the the gospel. We're made at peace with God. And because we're made at peace with God, we are called to live in peace with others. As gospel people, we should seek peace. Because that's what the gospel does. As gospel people, we should seek it. We should seek it. If, if all we ever do is wage war with everyone around us, 
If all we ever do is wage war with those who don't agree with us, if all we ever do is post and share posts of these ridiculous pretend preachers who are waging war with Starbucks, then are we gospel people seeking peace? Psalm 34 says, turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Seek it. Pursue it. I can't help but ask in my own life, and I fall short so many times, do, do I seek peace? Or am I just contentious? Now, seeking peace does not equal being conformed to the world. That's not peace. The truth is that Christians are the most good for the world when we are the least like the world. Seeking peace doesn't mean to compromise. Peacemaking does not mean approval or blanket acceptance of anything and everything. That is not peacemaking. That's appeasement. Peacemaking means being patient and kind and loving and gracious. Why? Because God has been patient and kind and loving and gracious. And that we are that way even in the face of persecution and suffering. Christ Jesus Himself set the example for us in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 and 23 through 23. Peter says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps. This is what you've been called to, to follow in His steps. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. What did Christ do in the face of such unwarranted suffering and persecution? He sought peace, he made peace. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Our relationships with others change when we see that the sovereign God has a purpose in our suffering, even at their hands, and we are called to seek peace, to pursue it, to make it. Gospel people are peace-seeking people. Patient, kind, loving Caring, gracious. Not only does our relationship with suffering change, not only does our relationship with others change, but our relationship with God changes as well when we live in this kind of perspective. Verse 14, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness 
without which no one will see the Lord. Strive for peace and for holiness. Holiness is sanctification. That's what it is. That's what it means. It is the process in which we are freed from the power of sin and transferred into godliness. Sanctification is God's work in us. Sanctification in our lives is the sovereign work of God. Holiness in us is the sovereign work of God. But it is one in which we are active by faith. It's a mystery. It's a mystery. God in His sovereignty makes us holy. It's not a work of ourselves, but yet we are called to participate in it by faith. This holiness means that we are set apart from a sinful world and we are set to God for His pleasure and His service. It's very interesting to me that this calling to strive for peace is joined with the striving for holiness. I believe they go together. Because we are peacemakers when we live holy lives. When we live in holiness, when we walk in holiness, when we seek holiness, as we're sanctified, conformed into the image of Christ, as we become like Him, guess what? We're peacemakers. Because He's a peacemaker. Sinlessness produces peace. Sin produces strife. If your whole world is nothing but strife, it's a really good time for you to stop and say, what kind of sin is present in my life? Because sinlessness produces peace and sin produces strife. And as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we must strive for holiness. Why? Because without holiness, no one will see God. That's what the verse says. Why? Because God is holy. God is holy. To to see Him, to be in His presence, because He is holy, we have to be holy. Now, I'm going to trust that 13 years of, of our preaching here at this church helps you understand this. Because it would take the rest of our time together to make sure that we get it. But there are two kinds of holiness. There is a positional holiness and there is a progressive holiness. Positional holiness is our standing before God. How we stand before Him. What position we're in before Him. And we cannot make ourselves holy positionally before God. We can't do it. God has to make us Holy. Because we're not holy. You can't make yourself holy. You're either holy or you're not. And so God is holy because in Him there is, there is no sin. There is no, no even, even a hint of, of wrongdoing in Him. He's perfect in splendor, majesty, holiness. He is totally set apart from all of creation. And we're not. We're over here. So we just can't miraculously become holy. Like Him. We have to be made like Him. And so that's what He does by faith in Christ Jesus through the gospel. He makes us holy before Him. That's positional holiness. But there's also a progressive holiness. 
This is sanctification. It is, it is how we live our lives. Once he makes us holy, we then have the ability to live in holiness. And we must walk in holiness, choose holiness, kill sin, throw off the sin that so easily entangles, run the path set before us, being conformed into the image of Christ Jesus. It's, it's understood, it's viewed this way because God has made peace with you. He's made you holy. Therefore, live in peace with others. Live holy lives. Our relationship with God changes when we understand that there's a purpose in His discipline. And it's not because He's condemning us. If you are in Christ Jesus, there is now therefore no condemnation. He has made us holy. His discipline in our lives comes for our progressive holiness before Him. And then lastly, it changes our relationship with the church. Verse 15. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. I think you probably will be wondering, what in the world does that have to do with how we view the church? Well, this is the concern that the writer of Hebrews has mentioned many times in the letter so far. As a matter of fact, this is is his fifth time to warn of apostasy, of falling away, of failing to obtain the grace of God. And he says here that we are to see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. See to it, he says. See to it. This is a corporate command. Running the race with endurance, living in peace, living in holiness. Those are all individual, personal commands. This is a corporate command. It is the command to the local church, to every member of the local church, that we are, you are, and I am called to see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Now this word here, see to it, is super interesting. It has at its root the Greek word episkopos which is elder or pastor. That's, that's what this, this, where this word gets its meaning. To see to it means to look upon, to inspect, to oversee, to look after, to care for. It is to shepherd, to guard. <clears throat> to guide, to pastor. And it is a corporate command that we are, all of us, we are called, we are commanded to look after one another, to shepherd one another. A corporate command, not just for the pastor alone. That life, 
in the local body should be one where every single member, every member is seeing to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. When you join this church, you sign a covenant. And um, we'll read that covenant together in a little over a month. We begin every year reading it together. And this is how it ends. I agree to walk in Christian harmony and watchfulness, giving and receiving assistance with meekness and affection. You know what that is? That is seeing to it. That's what that is. I think this understanding of the local congregation and how we view the church and our role in it, I think it's one of the biggest things that's missing in the church. And I think in in a lot of ways it's missing in this church. I think it's missing in every church. Because we just, we just come and we do our thing and we're here and we listen and we sing and, and we're happy to be here. We see each other and we hug each other and, and we, leave the, we leave the hard work, the difficult work, the, the, the shepherding. We leave it to the pastor and the pastor alone, the elders and the elders alone. But that is not this verse, church. This verse tells you to see to it. You are to be equipped. And you are to be equipped to do the works of the ministry, Ephesians chapter 4. And the works of the ministry is, is a shepherding work. And so our, our job as, as shepherds, as elders, is to equip you to shepherd. To see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Do we view our life in the church this way? Where we are called to have an active part in the life of the body, to see to it that no one fails to to reach. I know what's going on in your life. I, I see these things. I'm concerned about these things. I need to encourage you in this way. I need to join with you in these things. I need to pray with you about these things. I need to be engaged with you in your life because I want to see to it. I want to see to it. I mean, getting here 10 minutes late and, and leaving three minutes when we're done is not seeing to it. And then never have an interaction again with anybody in the life of the church until the next Sunday when you're 10 minutes late. That's not seeing to it. That is foreign for a New Testament church. See to it, he says. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. See to it that no one falls away. See to it that you run with endurance. And you, by God's grace, would you please see to it that I run with endurance. And then see to it that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. And by it, many become defiled. Oh, I'd, I'd be honest with you. I had no idea what this meant. I thought, I thought it was just saying, you know, don't be bitter. If you let a root of bitterness in there, you're, you're going to, you know, it's going to give you some trouble. It's, 
I don't think that's necessarily what it means. Though if you're bitter towards me, that's what it means. <laughs> it's an allusion to, to Deuteronomy chapter 29. In verse 18, it says, Beware, lest there be among you a man or a woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away from the Lord our God and go to serve the gods of those nations. Beware, lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. That's, that's Brian Hebrews is, is, is alluding to this. this. This root of bitterness that produces bitterness in the, in the heart and the life of the church. This is not a, a peaceful fruit. It's a bitter fruit. And see, this danger was that there might be in Israel in these days, there might be a group that would arise within the people of God and seek to promote unbiblical teachings and practices to pull as their heart goes to other gods and they pull others along with them to go to other gods. Such a root is only bitter. It tastes bad. And it is a poison. And it brings spiritual death and it defiles. In this church, in, in Hebrews, there was this root. And it was seeking to pull them back into Judaism. Away from the gospel, away from Christ. That is a root of bitterness. that produces fruit that is poison. It defiles. It kills. You see, bad doctrine defiles. And so we must be careful of it. And we must see to it that it is not here. There is no root here of that in this church. See to it. Guess what? That means that you see to it that I don't preach bad doctrine. That's what it means. That means that I see to it that you don't believe and propagate bad doctrine. Because it's a bitter root. May our hearts not be turned away from the living God to other gods. Then he says, see to it. See to it that sin isn't trifled with. Especially that that is sensual and, and godless. Verse 16, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. I, I read that, I thought, that just seems weird to me. Does that strike anybody else? Like, that just kind of came out of left field, out of nowhere. He's saying, listen, we're to see to it that all of us looking after each other, that sin in our life, is, it's not just toyed with, it's not trifled with, it's not played with. That these, these roots of bitterness, that they're dealt with. That we don't fail to obtain the grace of God because we're just playing with sin. And then he, just, he uses Esau as the example. Maybe you know the story. Esau was a man that toyed with sin. Sensual sin. 
godless things. He took many wives of other gods, pagan wives, and he was so driven by just sensuality. In the scriptures, that's, that's manifested in a lot of ways. So it, it might manifest itself in sexual immorality. It's also just seen in just like a desire for anything that satisfies for the moment, even food. And so Esau just, he just wanted a bowl of stew. And he was willing to give up his covenant birthright for that. That's how sensual, how driven by the, by the flesh and this momentary satisfaction. And because of it, he lost, he lost everything. We've got to see to it that we don't fall into those same patterns and, and traps. That when we see that there is purpose in God's discipline in our lives, in God's chastisement in our lives, when we see that way, when we understand that these things are for our good and for His glory, then our relationship with suffering changes. We welcome it. What is God trying to produce in me? What's He trying to remove from me? Our relationship with others outside the congregation changes. We begin to seek peace. We don't need to respond with, with, with vengeance, with vitriol. But because the gospel's changed our lives, by making us at peace with God. We want to be gospel people. We want to take peace there. I don't have to fight with you. God is using you to produce something in me. I'm going to seek peace. That's how we view the others outside the church. It changed the way we view God. We seek holiness. We seek to walk in holiness. Our, our path is, is straight. We're seeking Progressive holiness. And we understand that God's disciplining hand in our lives is a means of our sanctification, of our progressive holiness. And then it changes the way we interact with one another in the church. And to say that the means of God's discipline in my life regularly can be the loving, confronting, voice of my church family. And we welcome it. Because God has a purpose in it. Because God is disciplining me as you see to it that these things aren't in me. God is disciplining you as I see to it that these things aren't in you. See, our, our, the way we view everything changes. And our job as Christians is to make sure that this kind of worldly perspective that wants to reject all of that finds no foothold in this church. 
and that we see to it that we live this way. We look after one another and we do so with peace and holiness and we trust the purposes and the promises of God. And these, these purposes and these promises of God, they are ours in the gospel. And we're called to be gospel people, to live in this, this perspective. And I promise you, if, if we as, as a church, if, if the church universal would live this way, we would see a massive change. In our neighborhoods, we'd see a massive change. In our schools, we'd see a massive change. In our workplaces, in our communities, in our nation, and in our world. The church living this way has, has a way to, to influence that is far greater than any king or president. And so how about let's stop ab- abdicating that responsibility and live this way. Because we see that there is, there is great purpose in God. And all of these things are an expression of his love towards us and, and our love towards one another. Jesus, would you help us live um, this kind of life? And that we would see um, that our Heavenly Father has great purpose in our being disciplined and chastised that he has a great purpose in our suffering and our persecution. And so we, when it comes, we welcome it and saying, God, what is it that you are trying to teach us? What are you trying to produce in us? What are you trying to remove from us? And when we see how you use those outside the church for these means, and so we seek peace with them. We see how you use these circumstances to sanctify us so that we walk in holiness before you. We, as a congregation that have covenanted together, would we all together see to it that we live this way. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this Christ Central Church sermon series. To find our gathering location and more sermons, visit ChristCentralChurch.net.